Jesus, none of this means anything if we can't encounter your love. So Jesus, we thank you that this is the centerpiece of why we gather, to encounter your love, that your love would transform us, that it would overflow in us. God, we thank you that you are here in this place, that you have promised us this. We ask that as we worship you, as we pray to you, as we learn from you, that we would become more like you. We thank you for who you are and for who you are making us to be. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. You all can have a seat. Awesome. Well, uh, my name is Lane. I am the youth and young adults director here at Before Church. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I would love to meet you. Maybe not all at once. Oh, thank you so much, Jonesy. Let's give a hand for Jonesy bringing the table. It's a big job. Before we uh, jump into the text this morning, I wanted to start by talking to you about something that the youth team and I are really, really excited about. Like, Everything else that happened in 2020, the pandemic kind of disrupted and sidelined a lot of our plans that we had, right? Including our plans for summer camp. We had to cancel last year, which was a huge bummer because camp has always historically been a really big part of what we do here at the church and been a part of student spiritual growth. And it's a bummer. And the pandemic has continued to impact our plans even as we move into 2021, but our teams did the best we could to try to think about these disruptions as perhaps an opportunity rather than a setback, for God to do something new in the lives of our students. So we began to ask ourselves, how do we take the very best things about camp, the heart of camp, and reimagine the experience for our students in a way that still works despite the disruptions that we're having to work with right now? What if we had an opportunity to take all the energy, all the fun, all the worship, all the excitement, all the spiritual growth that has been a part of camp and channel that beyond camp? Channel it into serving others. As much as spiritual growth has been a rich part of our church's history, our church's legacy, the church has also carried with it a legacy of service. So what if we empowered our young people to lead the charge of being for our city? We're saying this all the time, that we are in the city, that we're for the city. And what if we empower them to serve those around us? Because we believe that Jesus deeply loves Beaverton, that Jesus deeply loves this community. So we started speaking with different nonprofits and different uh, city leaders in our area and asking them, hey, what could we do to be of service? And guess what? They told us. They gave us lots of opportunities. So this summer for our youth camps of 2021, we are going beyond camp. We are going to bring the best aspects of camp, the community, the biblical teaching, the worship, and the fun, but at the center of it all is going to be a heart of service for our city. We're calling this initiative Youth for the City, and it's going to be taking place right here in the Beaverton area. It's going to be more affordable and more accessible for people as well, and it's going to give our students an opportunity to experience the joy of emulating Christ's character who came to this earth not to be served, but to serve right? So at the end of the service, our greeters are going to be at the, at the doors, and they'll be handing out some save the dates for Youth for the City. Uh, make sure to mark that on your calendars. More information is going to be coming your way about the practical things that you can do to support us and that we're going to be doing to support the city. We are really, really excited to partner with you. So that was one announcement that I had, and now we get to dive into today's text. We are going to be in Leviticus, 
No surprise there, we've been in Leviticus, chapter 21 and 22. And I'm really excited to be in this series in Leviticus. I really am, but I wasn't at first because, you know, Brad emailed me and asked, hey, would you want to preach on this day in, in Leviticus series? And I replied, yes, I would love to preach in Leviticus. Who doesn't want to preach out of Leviticus, right? And then on the inside, I'm thinking, do I really want to preach out of Leviticus? <laughs> this is going to be a little weird. You know, like I, I joined vocational ministry as a worship leader, as a musician, right? So I really loved all of the beautiful language about the Bible, the things that could be taken from the Bible and put to melody, right? Like that song, As the Deer. Do you know this song? As the deer panted for the water, so my soul. Isn't that beautiful? The song, not my voice. <laughs> what if I was just up here like, don't I sound great? Tell me how great I am. Um, but Leviticus we can't really turn these passages into songs. Nobody wants worship songs written around Leviticus, right? The section that we're going to be looking at today, it's going to be in Leviticus 21 and 22, and it's all centered around the ritual purity of the priesthood. So it's all sort of clinical. The, the, the priests and the high priests, they're the people who are carrying out the ritual worship of the Hebrew God, Yahweh, on behalf of the people, right? It all reads as sort of primitive, as sort of not really that beautiful. The idea is that God is demanding really high standards, both morally and ritualistically, giving these, these, these guidelines for cleanliness for the priesthood. And that in order to facilitate worship of Yahweh in the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting where these ritual sacrifices are taking place, the priesthood had really, really high standards of living. You know, I grew up in the church, not this church, but I grew up in a church, and I really love the church. I really do. The church, sometimes we miss the mark and we make a mess of things, but I really love the church, warts and all. It's been a huge blessing on my life. But growing up, I, I felt like what I, what I was taught, or at least maybe what I understood, misunderstood, was that the idea of being set apart as a people, the idea of being holy, was so that I could set an example to the people around me that I would have really good behavior, right? That people would see Jesus in me because of the things that I like refuse to do, like do drugs or drink alcohol or cheat on a test or you know, bully people, et cetera, et cetera. And because I didn't do these things, I was following Jesus and people would see the light of God in me and they would be drawn to me. I was really straight-laced as a kid. You know, I, I, I was really respectful of my teachers. I refused to participate in kind of the, the party culture. I got good grades. And I got acknowledged for these things, right? Adults would say things like, oh, Lane, you're, you're one of the good ones, you know? And I don't think that any of this is like wrong or bad. I would prefer this to like foolish and wild living. But in some ways, it kind of would give me a posture of self-righteousness, kind of a sort of pride that I wasn't like other people, you know? Like, oh man, I'm so glad that I don't stoop down to their, their level. And as much as I do think that Jesus doesn't want us throwing caution to the wind and living immorally, um, I have to wonder if I was missing something. Of course I was missing something. I think it's easy for us all to miss this though. I think it's easy, there's, there's a Pharisee in me that's always trying to get out, right? We make this faith in Jesus thing all about being well-behaved. And we get into this pattern of thinking that if we're well-behaved enough that people will want to know Jesus uh, that, that we follow and help them be more behave, behaved as well. I don't know about you, but that's never really worked out super well for me. Just because I refuse to participate in things, people don't tell me like, oh, I wanna be just like you. In fact, usually what it do, does is it seems to draw a line between me and the people who don't follow the rules. It actually tends to create distance. So how are they going to get to, to, to know the Jesus that I know if I don't even provide a space and an opportunity for them to get to know me? How is that going to work? 
One of the things that you hear in church a lot is you love God and you love people. But if my faith gets all wrapped up in learning how to follow the rules and keep my hands clean, I'm not going to be able to do either of those things very well, right? So that, that's what we're going to be wrestling with here. What does it actually mean for God to set us apart? And what was his intention there? So we're going to start reading through chapter 21. It's a long one, uh, so I'm going to read fairly quickly. Just hang with me. Are you guys ready? Okay, you sound a little less enthusiastic about being with me, but here we go. Chapter 21. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For her, he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. Priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edge of their beards or cut their bodies. They must be holy to their God and must not profane the name of their Lord their God because they present the food offerings to the Lord. The food of their God, they are to be holy. They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorce from their husbands because priests are to be holy to their God. Regard them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy because I, the Lord, am holy, I who make you holy." If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father, she must be burned in fire. Wow, that took a turn. Um, The high priest, the one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured over his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments must not let his hair become unkept or tear his clothes. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it because... He has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. The woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow or a divorced woman or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people so that he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes you holy. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer food to his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand or who is a hunchback or a dwarf or who has has an eye defect or who has a festering or running sores or damaged testicles. Look, I'm just reading what it says in front of me. That's what the Bible says. (laughs) But you, you see what I mean? Like we can't really turn these phrases into songs. Can you imagine? Let none who has festering or running sores or damp. No, we, we, we can't do that, right? Wouldn't it be great if Brad and Casey just came back from their trip and we were just singing songs called Leviticus 21? Come on, church, sing festering sores together. It's, it's weird. It's just weird. Okay, continuing on, verse 21. No descendant of Aaron, the priest who has any defect, is to come near the priest. To, to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God as well as the holy food. Yet because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So Moses told this to Aaron and his sons and to all of the Israelites. <sighs> Let's pray and say the benediction. <laughs> Good job, we made it. Okay, so upon a first read... This stuff isn't just kind of clunky and kind of weird. It almost seems like kind of offensive, doesn't it? If we're honest, doesn't it seem kind of like offensive? It almost feels like God is setting apart this club of people that get to hang out with him in the tabernacle, but they can only be really beautiful, perfect, like super saints, yeah? And they can't be associated with anybody who isn't perfect. Isn't that kind of what it seems like? It does, right? Is God really 
making human beings with defects and diseases and mistakes in their past to feel less than and to feel disregarded. Why is God making the, seeming, the seemingly strange request of his priesthood? Are the priests just better than everyone else? Spoiler alert, no. I don't think that's what God is doing. See, God's character is made manifest in Jesus, right? Because we believe that Jesus is God. And if we believe that, that means we have to look at the entire, entirety of the Bible through the lens of Jesus' character. And if we're offended by something in the Bible, then, then we're probably missing something, right? Because Jesus was the kind of guy that didn't make people feel bad about themselves, right? If they, had a, a, if they were sick or if they were deformed or they were ashamed of their sin. No, Jesus actually had the, the exact opposite effect, didn't he? He was compassionate. He was merciful to the undesirables and the untouchables, wasn't he? He was. So there has to be something that we have to connect the dots in here. We have to remember the story of the Bible, right? We have to zoom out the story of humanity on a 30,000-foot level to get out of the weeds of some of this seemingly strange text, and we see what the whole narrative of Scripture is. If we go to the beginning of your Bible, if we go all the way to Genesis, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, right? Humanity's space and God's space were one and the same thing, his perfect and loving design. And then we had to go and mess that up. So human beings decided to try to determine what was good apart from the loving union with God, right? We all are prone to do this. We call this sin, which is the result, the result of which is death because it draws us away from God and God is the giver of life. So it breaks our perfect union with God, therefore breaking the union of God's space, heaven, and our space, earth. And then human beings wrestle with this for several millennia, paraphrasing here, and then enter Jesus, who perfectly restores the heaven-earth union because he is both fully divine, fully God, and fully human. And he suffers death. He conquered it so that the reality of death over humanity would be broken. And now as we as people of Jesus, we look forward to this reality where what he declared, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this reality will be fully realized. We flip to the end of the Bible, the very last book. In Revelation 21, we see this beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now listen to this one. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So it's this great reversal, right? It is the restoration of everything that we walked away from in the Garden of Eden. And why does all this matter? Well, if we think about the tabernacle, this tent of meeting where all these rituals are taking place, where the worship of God is being expressed, it's supposed to provide a picture of Eden in Genesis, the garden. The tabernacle was adorned with all these fruit trees and all these beautiful sculptures of heavenly beings. It was made to resemble the Garden of Eden, which is the picture of heaven and earth united, where the fullness of God's presence dwells. And where heaven is, death, suffering, mourning, disease, defect, 
will not be. Do you see? It's a promise. The tabernacle is a promise of a heavenly reality. When God is worshipped for who he is, when all of humanity recognizes the goodness of God and the life that he brings, the old order of things passes away. No more death or crying or pain. Isn't that a relief? God wasn't trying to keep the ugly people in the back. (laughs) That's not what he was doing. He was helping the Israelites to see a picture of heaven when they came to worship him. And in heaven, death undergoes resurrection. Disease undergoes healing and defect undergoes restoration. You gotta love the Bible. You gotta love this. Don't you love the lengths that God went to to reconcile creation to himself? What a good God he is. Okay, so the priests, they're set apart. They have all these stipulations that we read through that they have to be very different. They have to be set apart, holy, pure, and they're kept separate from disease, defect, mourning, and death so that they can embody the presence of what heaven is and what earth will be. It's a ritual. It's symbolism. It's metaphor. But fast forward a few thousand years from Moses and the documentation of these rituals to Jesus. And how is Jesus teaching his disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the story of the Bible. When the Israelites bring their sacrifice to the altar this beautiful image of heaven and earth united, a place where God is touching humanity, the priest, who is this pure, clean, righteous person, would take part in a really, really gruesome ritual where there'd be blood splattered all over their perfectly white robes. These perfect-looking priests, they're splattering blood from animal sacrifices on the outside of the altar. They're not gonna keep those robes clean for very long. They're gonna get all messy and bloody and gross. Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson, he was a pastor and and writer, and um, he wrote this book called The Pastor. And in that book, he's recounting uh, uh, his memories with his dad. His dad was a meat butcher. And as he's going through the Old Testament, he realizes, I think that, that ancient priests had more in common with my dad than they did with modern ministers, right? These rituals would require working with like ashes and lots of water and blood and intestines. I mean, they probably knew more about like livestock anatomy than spiritual formation, you know? The, the job was terrible, gruesome work. There's not a lot of people submitting their applications to be in the priesthood, you know? In fact, in 2 Chronicles 7, it's recorded that King Solomon offered a sacrifice, one sacrifice that was 22,000 oxen, and 120,000 sheeps and goats. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine the sheer logistics of just processing that much meat? It says that all the priests were on duty that day. (laughs) Yeah, they kind of had to be to process all those animals. Can you imagine what a gruesome experience this would have been? And they had all these guidelines to be pure and holy and pretty, yeah. But then we took these pristine, clean people and we threw them at acts of worship like that. 120. 60-ish thousand sacrificed animals. It was a messy, dirty, awful job. They also had to be the ones that were looking after everyone's skin diseases. Yay. Like, can you imagine being one of the priestly interns of ancient Israel? I did eight years of seminary for this to examine old man Benjamin's old body sores. It was a tough job. The role of the priest was one that was set apart in order to be a servant to the people. Looking good, smelling good, no. 
Not most of the time, bloody, dirty, sweaty, the opposite of glamorous. Do you think that maybe God was trying to send a message about his people, about the nature of service, about the nature of worship? I think so. It shows us that it costs us something. It shows us that it requires humility. There's this incredible passage in John 13 when Jesus, the leader, the teacher, the master of disciples, he takes off his robe and ties it around his waist like a common servant of, of a household at the time. And he begins washing the feet of the disciples, which rabbi would never be caught doing. And the disciples, of course, are astonished at this. And after Jesus gets done washing their feet, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And then he invites us to do the same. He brings us into that story. Brad so beautifully spoke last week that when God made the covenant with Abraham at the birth of the nation of Israel, God moved between the animal bones to signify, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I be like these bones torn apart. And then, in a crazy twist, he says, and if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, may I be like these bones, torn apart. The God we worship set an example that though he is mighty and great and holy and majestic and more infinite and, and righteous than any priest ever possibly could be, he willingly lays down his life in the most bloody, horrible way for those he created. Because he loves us. Because he longs to be with us. Not just because he needs us. Or he doesn't need us. Not because he needs us, but because it's his joy. I think some of us need to hear that tonight. I think some of us live into this narrative that perhaps my story is all about trying to follow the rules well enough so that God can approve of me and I can finally get his affection, get his love. And you do this religious dance where you're never quite good enough because you can never be perfect because you're a human being. God laid everything on the line because he wanted to be with you. That is his heart. Not to make you strive for a goal that you can never achieve and then feel bad about it. He loves you deeply. He desires to be with you. That's why he went through the lengths that he did to be reconnected with humanity again. You know, we use a lot of weird language in church. We have songs that say things like, I've been washed by the blood of the lamb. What in the world? Can you put yourself in the, in the shoes of a first-time churchgoer and hearing a song like that? Some of you are probably in this room. I've never been in church before. And you're wondering, what kind of weird cult have I gotten myself into? I know it seems really primitive and really strange, but, but think about it. Blood represents life. The blood in my body, it keeps me alive. It carries oxygen to my body and it carries away toxins. It represents life. And in this very strange, primitive animal sacrifice method, the blood of a spotless animal is used to signify the purification of human beings. Why animal sacrifice? It, it was this mode of worship that was already in existence and God just decided to use this language that the people were already speaking and he tweaked it in order to communicate something about himself that was set apart, that was different from the other gods. These rituals, they were pointing to a larger future. They were pointing to a more important sacrifice. When John the Baptist announces Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' blood poured out 
for humanity. In humanity's best understanding of who Jesus is, we believe him to be fully man and fully God, somehow a 200% person. Or perhaps he's the only human being who is 100% who God designed humans to be, and we are all 50% persons without the divine. That's neither here nor there. But what is Jesus if not the perfect manifestation of the story of heaven and earth being brought together again? Fully God, fully divine, and fully man, fully earth. And it's his blood, his life, the cleansing of humanity that restores us to who we were always meant to be. And when he asks us to come to the table of communion, to the Eucharist, the bread and the cup, when we eat of his body and we drink of his blood, it's his blood, his life, that moves through us and restores us to who we were always meant to be, a holy transfusion. Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love the lengths that God went to for us to know his love? And as Jesus poured out his, his, his life um, and his love, Jesus comes to serve and then he asks us to do the same. He lowers himself to serve, he humbles himself and asks us to do the same. That was the plan from the outset, right? That the Israelites would be set apart in their trust of God so that they could be a blessing to the nations. Right? In, in Genesis 22, it says, God said to Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. But somewhere along the way, a lot of the Israelites kind of lost the plot. Jesus came to the earth and he observed that all these religious elite, they had forgotten the mission. That all would come to know the glory of the Lord. That all would come to worship him. That heaven would meet earth. And these, these rituals, this primitive system that God used to communicate, he used it to commu- communicate something really unique about himself. That he wanted to communicate something really unique about who he wanted his people to be. To say, if you really want to be in my presence, if you really want to be in my dwelling place, you need to be willing to get your hands dirty. You need to be willing to lay down your life in the service of others. And that's going to be messy. You know, some of us may look at Leviticus and think, well, I'm off the hook because this is about priests and I'm not a member of the clergy. But here's the thing. Did you know that I'm technically a reverend? I just think that's really interesting. When I got my Foursquare license, it said Reverend Lane Greenleaf Prez. It made me feel really cool. That's neither here nor there. Um, We think, well, because Reverend is not in front of my name, I'm off the hook. I don't have to, you know, whatever. But what Jesus did was he started a movement where the kingdom of God was not ushered in simply by the religious elite, but the poor. On the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter five through seven, many, or one scholar described this as Jesus's inaugural address, which I love that. And in the opening line of the inaugural address, he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, what radical words for a people that come from this priesthood culture. See, Leviticus is in the Old Testament, right? And then there's something that really cool that happens in the New Testament around the time of Jesus where the concept of the priesthood was being given over to the people. The obligation of the priesthood was now being given over to anyone who followed Jesus. The Apostle Peter writes about this. He calls us a chosen race, a holy priesthood, because we are of Jesus. And Jesus knows the power structures of this world. He knows how it works. He knows how it works. He knows how we like to accumulate power and use it to leverage ourselves into places of influence and control. And he upsets all of that. Jesus came to give his life as the ransom for many. 
we're meant to be the holy priesthood. There's this story where Jesus is asked by a woman that he meets um, where they should worship. She goes, Jesus, your people worship on this mountain and my people worship on this mountain. What, what should we do? And Jesus said, actually, a time is coming and has already come where true worshipers will not worship on this mountain or that mountain, but true worshipers, the one the Father looks for, will worship in spirit and in truth. He's saying that the dwelling place of God will no longer be about geography. We, though we don't work in the temple, will be those who dwell in the presence of God. And that's the, the whole mystery of this when we're singing about, you know, your, your spirit is in this place and kingdom of God, pour out your, your spirit fresh on us. There's this mysterious way that God enters into our lives and he inhabits us. The tabernacle and later the temple was all about drawing near to the presence of God as God draw, drew near to us. But Jesus, he radically changed the nature of how human beings interacted with the presence of God. In the Gospel of John, John writes that Jesus came and dwelled among us. And that word best directly translates to tabernacled among us. You gotta love the Bible. So cool. He brought heaven to earth. He tabernacled among us. And now we see the fruition of what God was trying to show us. That the, the, the cleansing power of his blood, his life, that Jesus offered the touch of God to the untouchables. Instead of the unclean making the priest unclean, Jesus transferred his holiness and cleanliness to those whom he touched in the lives that he encountered. Wherever he went, heaven followed. Temple was wherever he was. Sick became healed, blind could see, lame could walk, and the dead became alive. Seven times in this passage that we just read, in between 21 and 22, Jesus announced, or the Yahweh announces, I am the Lord and making you holy. And Jesus is the way in which he does this. And the method that Jesus chose to make us holy, to sanctify us, was through service and sacrifice. A perfect and selfless love. I think so many of us, we, 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 we see sanctification, the process by which we become more and more holy, as just getting better and better at following the rules. But that's not what it is. It's the process by which we allow the love of Jesus to transform us. We allow ourselves to receive the love of Jesus. It is in union with him that we are made holy, the priesthood set apart, so that we can be better equipped to lay down our lives for the world as Jesus did. We're made holy by knowing his love, by being in connection with him. And then we get to love everyone with the same radical disregard for people's suitability. We get to love absolutely everyone without discrimination. You know, the idea of like self-discipline and like self-help and self-care is kind of a really big topic in our culture right now. We see all kinds of like blogs and Instagrammers and people that are talking about self-care. When we take care of ourselves and do really good at like following rules and eating keto and exercising and meditating on Nietzsche and stuff. When we do those things and we do it for the sake of being someone who follows rules really well, who just is healthy, I think we miss out on the full joy and the mission of God. There's, a, there's someone named Dr. Amy Oden and she wrote this book about the spiritual discipline of mindfulness. And she says this, she says, any spiritual practice can become perverted 
by self-absorption. However, the proper telos, or the ultimate objective, of all Christian spiritual practices, including mindfulness, is not self-improvement. Rather, the proper end is to be transformed into Christ-likeness, to participate in God's dream for the world. To be absolutely clear, if mindfulness practice stops at self alone, then it fails as a Christian practice. On the other hand, this simple, accessible, adaptable spiritual practice can, through the Spirit's power, transform lives and bless the world. Doesn't that language sound familiar? Set apart to be a blessing. So Jesus, he brings down this ministry of reconciliation, of heaven and earth being brought back together. And Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5. And he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we have been given the same mission that Jesus had, to reconcile creation to God. So we bring with us now heaven wherever we go. Earlier in the, in, the, in the passage, Paul writes, we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ of those, to those who are being saved. You know, I have a four-year-old son. I talk about him all the time, and I love him very much. And he has a grandmother, uh, who's my mother. Glad we cleared that up. Um, and every time that he spends a lot of time with her, I know it. Because when I pick him up, and he runs to me, and I pick him up, and I, and I grab him, and I squeeze him, and I smell him, you know? He smells just like his grandmother, which is usually a combination of certain essential oils, yeah? It's very strong. And I say, hey, you've been with Grammy, haven't you, right? When people are with, are, are, when we are with people, they should be asking, you've been with Jesus, haven't you? You've touched heaven, haven't you? But guess how they smell heaven on us? Not just because we're well-behaved. They smell heaven on us when we serve them. When we lay down our lives for them, we get to reply, yes, heaven is in my heart because I am loved by the heavenly Father. And I lay down my life for you because Jesus laid down his life for me. This is the call, to be set apart, to be a blessing. Can we stand together? May we be men and women who are transformed by the love of God so that we may better lay down our lives for those God loves. Go with peace. Love you all. Oh, and by the way, uh, last weekend we had Dr. Preston Sprinkle out to do a parent Q&R on uh, gender, sexuality, and faith. It was a wonderful time. Um, his book is available for sale in the back in the info center. If you already purchased your copy, you can just give them your name and pick it up. Otherwise, uh, we're selling it at a discount. So that's available for you. See you later. <laughs>